0: Hey this is Junior Ziegler. Thanks for listening to my podcast. I hope this time in God's word encourages you. Hope it brings you closer to God. Hope it challenges your perspective. Glad you're joining. Enjoy the message. Right now, I don't know if you noticed or knew this when you walked into this room, but you walked into a time machine believe it or not. We right now are in a time machine capable of traversing time and space. 2020 has not been our year. So we are vacationing away from 2020. Hallelujah. And uh, let's get out of Illinois while we're at it too, shall we? Destination, Middle East, time, 10 BC. We're going to go before Jesus was born. And as this time machine arrives, we find ourselves in a world far different than anything any of us have Ever experienced. Welcome to 10 BC. Just outside those doors is a BC world, and I should caution you beware. War is constant here. The reason being is war provided opportunity for men to become great. See, just outside of those doors, every man carries a craving for greatness, and the only way to become great in this BC world out here is through conquest if you want to become great go to war because it's in war that you can rise to the ranks you gain land greatness happens through conquest political conquest land conquest and sexual conquest after battle the victorious army would uh, pillage the defeated cities and unfortunately the men saw the women as war prizes Offering another conquest, a sexual conquest. If you want to become great, get more power, gain more land, and then fill your bedposts with notches from willing and unwilling partners. That is the recipe for BC greatness, and it caused chaos. 2020 in Illinois may not be so great, but out here, this is awful. Violence is everywhere, rape is common, STDs and battle injuries plague the majority, and it all comes from the quest to achieve greatness. And the best illustration of this is on the palace just up the hill outside the doors. So imagine with me for a moment that we all exit our time machine and we head out into the wild BC world. We begin walking up a a rather large hill to the palace that sits atop, overlooking the land. And as we reach outside of the palace, we quickly find security here is no joke. Just past the immense thick walls, armed guards patrol the courtyards, looking at all the different lookout points. It takes more than a couple guards to open up the massive wooden solid doors that bring us into the inner chamber. And as we walk into the inner chamber, we are mesmerized by the massive columns that jet up into the tall, dark ceiling of nothing. The walls are meticulously painted with gold inlay. The floor is marble, mosaic floor. The architecture and design is meant to both impress But also intimidate, and it does. And there in that dimly lit room, throne room, sits a man who has achieved B.C. greatness. His name is Herod. And not just Herod, but Herod the Great. We know him for trying to kill baby Jesus, but make no mistake, Herod has made a name for himself with other achievements At the age of just 33, through political games, he's assumed the title King of the Jews. He's a political genius. He held his power for more than 40 years, which is unheard of. He's a rather disgusting creature. His love for women perverted into a love of children. It was rumored that numerous STDs led to his death. He held quite a few orgies in the palace, and when someone did not please him according to his desire, he would have them pushed off the cliffs just outside Nonetheless, the buildings that he is building would still be marveled at 2,000 years later. He was Herod the Great, and his greatness is cemented in history. Fast forward a decade or more, entered Jesus Christ. Jesus ran from King Herod as a baby. Jesus also did some building, probably, carpentry. Worked in a little town called Zapori, which is named after one of Herod's sons. None of Jesus' construction projects are marveled at today like Herod's are. Herod the Great was known to be the friend of Romans. Jesus was known to be the friend of sinners. Herod had accomplished B.C. greatness. Herod set a new standard. Herod raised the bar. He was Herod the Great. And then Jesus came along. And Jesus is about to have a conversation that will redefine the word greatness, and in so doing, change the world as we know it. Just one conversation. Oh, this is going to be so good. Mark chapter 9, verse 33 is where we find ourselves today. Mark chapter 9. I know Jordan had you pull out your phones early. You can pull those out again because we have the Bible on the Bridge app, or you just go on, uh, online, pull up the, the Bible. Uh, usually we have Bibles in the chairs and we have the, like, the page numbers on the screen for those, but we just can't do that right now with everything with COVID. But So grab a Bible or uh, your phone, but Mark chapter 9 is where we find ourselves today. Let me pray as we jump into this. Father, we thank you so much that we can gather together as a church family. Thank you that we can sing to you. What a big deal that is for us as a believer, community of, of believers, to sing our praises to you. God, you enjoy that. Father, I ask that you be with us during this time because admittedly we confess that we so so many of us are on these quests for something that is not going to bring us fulfillment. And so God, I ask that you speak to us, that you speak into our hearts, to the Holy Spirit, that you bring situations to mind as we look at your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 33. Or Mount Hermon, we're not quite sure, but we talked a little bit about that uh, last week. But what Jesus and his disciples experienced up on the mountain would be... Jesus and his three disciples had this amazing mountaintop experience. And now it's time to come back down and go back to work. The moment that Jesus reaches base camp, there's a crowd... And from a distance, he can see that the religious critics, his religious critics and his disciples are arguing. And as he gets closer, he finds out what the problem was. The the issue was there was a demon-possessed boy, and nobody could cast the demon out of him. And so all eyes are locked on Jesus as Jesus heals the boy. And no, no sooner does he heal the boy, Jesus leaves with his disciples, and they embark on a road trip. A road trip where they would stay away from the crowds, and they would bypass the cities. Can you imagine being on that road trip? An intentional, private conversation that Jesus will have with his disciples as they head back home. Mark brings us into it. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. It says this, They went from there and passed through Galilee. Now there, we believe, is Caesarea Philippi, uh, which would be far up north. And he's making his way back down to Capernaum. It's about a 40-mile trek. With, with walking, uh, according to Google, that's a 12-hour road trip. Maybe, maybe more since they're avoiding different, um, different crowded areas in, in different cities, taking detours and all of that. So they're in Caesarea Philippi. They're heading down to Capernaum. They went there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, "'The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, "'and they will kill him. "'And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise.'" So there they are on the road trip. As they're they're walking, Jesus is is talking with them. And, And Jesus is reminding his disciples, hey, remember last week I told you guys this, but remember this is a big deal. I am going to die. I'm not the type of God you're wanting. You guys want a political God. That's not me. I'm not that. I'm a suffering servant. I am not the God you're wanting. And my bet is, Jesus is saying that to some of us. I'm not the God you want. Because I want God to fix my problems. I want my God to answer all my prayers. I want my God to keep me from all difficulty because dang it, I deserve it. I go to church. And Jesus says, yeah, but that's not me though. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He pulls his disciples aside privately says, guys, I'm not the God you're hoping for. I didn't come to set up world power. I didn't come to, to free you from Roman oppressors. I've come to die. I've come to sacrifice. I've come to serve. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been thinking this th- throughout the book already, is why aren't the disciples getting this? This is the, at least the second time that Jesus is telling them this, and they don't get it. Why aren't the disciples getting this? Well, because this is the opposite of their understanding of God and everything they know about their Jewish faith. Because all throughout the Old Testament, going back to Genesis chapter 12, God gives a promise to the founding father of the Jewish faith, Abraham. God says, Abraham, if you follow me, out of you I will make a great nation. And Abraham has Isaac, and then Isaac has Jacob. Jacob changes his name to Israel. Israel, 12 sons, 12 tribes of Israel. A great nation is born. So going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abraham, hey, from this nation, I'm going to bring about a Savior who will bless all nations and from remove oppression to usher in prosperity. This is what the disciples' grandpas and their grandpas were talking about and waiting for. We're waiting for King David 2.0. And now Jesus takes the disciples aside and says, okay, it's not like that, though. I'm a Savior, but I'm not a political Savior. I will bless, but not the way you think. Your liberation will be through my blood. As they walk, this is what Jesus is explaining to them. But they did not understand. They were afraid to ask. I think they partly didn't understand because part of them just didn't want to believe it. After all, if Jesus comes to set up a great kingdom, the disciples will be sitting pretty. They'll probably get their own a palace. They'll get their own land to rule over. They will be great. They'll be like governors or something. This, talking, this talk of like suffering though from Jesus, it makes no sense. It's in one ear, out the other. In fact, so in one ear, out the other, that in the back of the minivan, the disciples take the discussion to a whole other direction. When you imagine this, there they are, they're just hours from home, home stretch. It's been a long day of walking. They had gotten up before the sunrise, taking the long way home, skipping towns and, and staying rural in order to avoid all the crowds looking for Jesus. And that's what he's telling them in the minivan, their minds just kind of seem elsewhere, And as they get back on the road, he overhears them in the back, debating and arguing. He overhears some pieces, but instead we get home to talk about this. You ever do that with your kids? They came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, so this house right here, uh, this is probably Peter's house. We we talked about this house in chapter 1 quite a bit, when Jesus spent an evening on the front porch healing people late into the night. You remember remember that in chapter 1? That was this house. As they sit inside this house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So they pull into the driveway, they unpack their gear, they head inside, they're exhausted, there's laundry to do. They sit down to rest their legs, and Jesus says, Hey, what were you all arguing about in the back of the minivan? What were you guys talking about? They don't say a word. Because they know he's doing that Jedi mind trick thing. Like in chapter 2, remember when the paralyzed guy is lowered to the roof? It's probably the same house that they were in under that same roof. But the, remember that, the story, that paralyzed guy by, th- with his friends lowered him to the roof, and the guy is dangling there, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And then he looks at the religious crowd on the couch, and he says, why are you guys thinking those things? And the religious crowd is like, you can do that? He's doing that with the disciples right now. Probably in the same room that he did this before. What were you guys arguing about in the back of the minivan on our way here? Sometimes I wonder how we would respond if Jesus confronted us this way. Think about the next time you're praying. And you're praying and and all of a sudden Jesus appears and goes, Hey, what have you been arguing about lately? What have you been arguing about with your spouse? I think we'd have the same response. Embarrassed. I don't want to talk about that right now, Jesus. What have you been arguing about with your spouse? What have you been arguing about with your coworkers? What have you been arguing about with your small group? What have you been arguing about online? Not a fun question to answer. Yeah, Jesus actually wrote that online for everybody to see. It was stupid, and now I'd rather not talk about it, though. Yeah, I've been arguing about this and I've been saying that, and now I wish I could take it all back. I just don't want to talk about it. It was 1 through 11. And you're thinking, Junior, there's there's 12 disciples. Yeah, but last week, Jesus just called Peter Satan. The 12th spot's taken. If Jesus calls you Satan, you might as well get in the back of the line. In all seriousness, though, Jesus just said, hey, guys, I'm going to die on the cross. And the 12 then respond by going, but how does this make me great? Which seems really silly, but we do this. Only we do it this way. When's church going to pay off for me? Some of us have been coming to church for years. And what have we found out going to church? Cancer grows. Houses get taken. Jobs disappear. Tumors leave, don't leave, but spouses do. Partners stab you in the back. Friends abandon you. And some of us are in the minivan, the back of the minivan, wondering, when is God going to pay off for me? Thinking about jumping into another vehicle, a vehicle that takes me in a better direction that's better for junior, places that I like better, places that make me feel better, because the driver of my minivan, Jesus, he doesn't steer away from potholes, he doesn't steer away from pain, he he takes detours, and, and, and he doesn't steer away from... Scary. In fact, it seems like he steers toward the scary areas. So when is this whole God thing, church thing, going to pay off for me? When will I get what I deserve? When will my greatness finally be realized? And this is what the disciples are arguing about. Jesus knows this. And being the good leader that Jesus is, he confronts them. Now, they don't want to talk about it, but Jesus does. And Jesus is about to give us three golden principles. In a B.C. world... A world of violence, a world of rape, a world of STDs. I cannot overstate this. The following words that we are about to read will change the B.C. world. And if you allow them, they will change you too. This little conversation is a huge moment in history. The following words will drive Jesus' followers to develop the agencies, the first food banks. Governments didn't come up with those. The church did. And throughout history, Jesus' followers have taken these following words and have championed them. The world has never been the same since. And it all starts in this moment, in this conversation, in this house, this night, right here. This is huge. Look at this. Jesus sat down, called the twelve. He said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all, servant of all. Last of all, servant of all. He could have said, last of those you get along with, servant of those you like. I mean, that alone would have been revolutionary for a B.C. world. But Jesus says, no, 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 I want you to be last of all, servant of all. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, that's great you want to be great. Jesus isn't saying, you know, wanting to be great is bad. It's great to want to be great. Fire in the belly is good. One time I had, I had a lady tell me, you know, wanting to be great is sinful. You should not pre- preach that. And I was like, get off your high horse, lady. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. She doesn't come to the church anymore. I wonder why. But Jesus teaches us right here how to be great. A desire for greatness is good. I want my marriage to be great. I want my household culture to be great. I want my career to be great and that's great. I don't want my girls marrying some loser who has no dreams, no fire, no desire for greatness. Like he can stay in his mama's basement. You and I, we're created for this desire to be great. And here Jesus says, okay, that's great, but then let me tell you how to be great. Because sin has jacked up your view of greatness, and it's messing you up. And it takes Jesus to be servant of all. Here's how you become great. You become last of all. You become servant of all. And again, that goes against everything in the B.C. world. Like, oh, today we like this. Today we're sitting in church going, this is great, this is great postable love this we only think this way because we live in a judeo-christian influenced society back then this is ridiculous greatness is achieved through getting ahead of way way ahead of everybody else it's about being served and jesus flips it here's what he's getting at i'd write this down this is huge principles of greatness according to jesus true greatness is leveraged for others true greatness is leveraged for others True greatness is taking what you're good at and leveraging it, not, to the, not for your benefit, but for others' benefit. Taking what you're good at, a skill, a trade, making money, networking. Being great is taking what you're good at and leveraging it to help others. Being great is not about getting way ahead of everybody else. No, no, no. Greatness is about taking what you're good at and coming alongside others. Problem is, you and I, and this is true, come on, let's just be honest with ourselves, this is so true. We are good at taking what we're good at, making money, networking, a trade, a skill, and using it only to benefit ourselves, to help ourselves get ahead. This is Herod. This is so many people today, tirelessly working to get ahead. And it takes Jesus to say, forget that, forget that. That's a never-ending chase. Instead, take what you're good at and then become last. Become a servant. Leverage what you're good at for the benefit of others and serve others. I got to tell you, this is, this is one of the many reasons I love working with the staff at this church. Every one of our staff could make more money going into the business world. I mean, we have very talented staff, and I'm not just saying that. Uh, my dad, very strong leader. Growing up, I overheard multiple very successful CEOs telling things like, you know, Scott, if you just jump over into the business world, you could kill it. Why don't you come run this division? Why don't you come run with my staff? He's like, no, I, I want to be a pastor. Just to love and serve and just come alongside people. Or Pastor Brian, you know, Pastor Brian, one of the most talented guys I know. I have no doubt Brian could go and be crazy successful in in different places. And that would not be wrong, but he'd rather serve people as his career. Or think of uh, Maddie. You guys know Maddie, the the, the blonde uh, bridge kids director. Well-educated, has very good connections, very gifted, very driven, before here, she spent a couple of years in Honduras, living in an orphanage, teaching children, now runs a program for, to love our kids. I mean, all of our staff, I could go on and on about Jordan, uh, Nanette, just very gifted, but they want to serve people. Think of non-staff. Uh, Greg McDonald, an attorney, a well-respected professional, each, each weekend, Often you find him teaching our kids, getting down on their level, leveraging his gifts to benefit children. I mean, he's an attorney throwing dignity to the wind and being goofy with the kids. That's greatness. Or think about John Joyce, a pediatrician, a dang good one. He's my kid's doctor. You'd think he'd be worn out working with kids all week, but each weekend you'll find him in the nursery using his gifts to benefit us. That's greatness. Oh, it wasn't always like that. BC world, that was unheard of. That's ridiculous. Greatness was an STD riddled pervert who owned vast lands and built great buildings. Until Jesus came along and redefined it. Hey, you guys want to be great? That's great. But take what you're good at and come alongside someone else. Assume last place if you have to. True greatness is leveraged for others. Something that we say at the bridge all the time is significance is achieved through serving. That's a Jesus principle of greatness. Significance is achieved through serving. We all want to be significant. Don't let anybody tell you it's bad to be significant. No, it's not. It's good to be, want to be significant. I, I want to make an impact in this world. I want to leave a mark in this life. As believers, that's what we're called to do. And Jesus says, that's great. That's done through serving, though. In the B.C. world, the way you left your mark on history was you built buildings. That's how you cemented your name into history, your construction projects. Herod left his mark by building buildings, and while they are incredible, to be honest with you, none of us really care that much, do we? Jesus, on the other hand, left a mark through his service, and here we are 2,000 years later, gathered together right now because Jesus is significant to all of us. You want to leave your mark, you want to make an impact, that's great, serve. Think about it this way. Humor me for a second. You ever, uh, You ever wonder, you ever talk about, like if you had one day to live, what you would do? Like if you knew that you were dying, what you would do? Skydiving, Rocky Mountain climbing, 2.7 seconds. Tomorrow night, you knew that you were going to die. What would you do between now and then? Jesus knew he had hours to live. What did he do? He changed into servants' clothes, and he washed feet, and then he served us by by taking a cross. And through that, Jesus became far more significant than Herod could have ever dreamed of achieving. Real significance comes through serving. So there they are, sitting in Peter's family's house. They're resting after a long road trip up north. They're kicking back, maybe dipping some bread and some olive oil. The lamps are lit just relaxing. Jesus looks at his disciples. Their eyes are locked on their teacher. They're still very quiet because they knew, they know that Jesus knew what they were arguing about. And sitting down, Jesus realizes this, this lesson needs to be hammered home. My crew needs to get this. And so looking around, he thinks this needs something more. This needs an object lesson. He took a child and he placed among them and Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Now, today, I mean, we're picturing the scene, right? We're picturing the scene, and we love this. We're thinking, Oh, it's probably like a little toddler. This is so cute. Like Jesus has him up on the lap, it's a precious moment. But you've got to understand, we only think this way because Jesus changed the world. During this time, Greco-Roman world, children can be seen but not be heard. Children weren't cute. Children were liabilities. Children were weakness. This is why many of the greats, if you look at the biographies, the biographies of, of many of the greats throughout history, their childhood, there's not much to their childhood. The writers never, the historians never wrote about their childhood because that's when they were weak. We don't want to talk about when the greats were children because that's when they were weak. It's kind of funny though, you know. Uh, Hercules, Greek mythology. Hercules, uh, Hercules was at one point he was a child. I think he was the only like Greek god where there's like writings about his childhood. But the writers, when they wrote about Hercules being a child, they wanted to make sure that he was not seen as a weak child. So they wrote about how Hercules is a baby. He took two venomous snakes and he killed them with he crushed them with his baby hands. Because they were making sure, hey, we're writing about his, him being a child. We want to make sure that he's not seen as weak. See, children were valued as less than your possessions. They were weak, they're less than your possessions, especially female children, unfortunately. Like for me, being a dad of, of just girls, I would have been considered a weak, poor father. That's just, that's just how it was, unfortunately. Uh, Male children were usually accepted by their father around the age of 11, 12 years old when they could then help dad out with a family trade. If you had a lot of money, you hired somebody to raise your kids, and then your kids were introduced to you at 11 or 12 years old. So Jesus taking a kid here isn't like this, oh, like story, this moment here, this is precious. No, this is like really weird. That's yeah, a very powerful lesson. Jesus takes the, the, the least of the social stratus. This might even be a little girl that Jesus has in his arms, like the lowest among them according to them. And he says, you guys want to be great? Serve her. Do something for someone who can never pay you back. Get low. Humble yourself. Serve someone who does nothing for you. Serve in places that aren't so postable and embrace a life of servitude. Third point that Jesus is making here. This is huge. Again, I would write this down. Third point. The lower you go, the higher you launch. The lower you go, the higher you launch. It's like a catapult. The lower you get it back, the further it launches. Jesus says that's that's how greatness works. There's a there's a thing at camp. Um we, we have a camp, by the way. Our church has a camp. It's about two hours north of here. I was just there Friday having a blast. And at camp, they have this uh, thing called um, the blob right here. This is uh, Paul Hart. He's uh, blobbing uh, Chase. So that's uh, P- Pastor Brian's son. So the blob, it's basically like this big bag that floats in the water, and you can jump off the high dive, and then you launch somebody up into the air. And uh, then, you know, then you would crawl to the end and somebody else would jump on it and launch you into the... I mean, it's a blast. It is, it is, it's so much fun. There's a trick to the blob, though. I got to let you in on this trick so that when you go up to camp, which I hope you do sometime soon, um, you, can, you can get more air on the blob. This is how you do it. When someone jumps off the high dive and you want to get launched really high, just before they land on the blob, you press yourself into, into the blob as far down as possible Uh, Because the further you can press in, the more power it has to to launch you up. That's exactly Jesus' point. This is how greatness works. You've got to lower yourself, press yourself down. The further you go, the higher you launch. This is Jesus' personal experience. Look at what uh, Paul wrote in Philippians. He wrote, he, meaning Jesus, made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. So he's saying Jesus went low, kept on going lower and lower and lower. Very next verse, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. So Jesus kept pressing himself down and down and down, and then God launched him to the highest place, gave him a name that is above every name. lower you go, the higher you launch. Peter, who's sitting in that very room, in that very moment, would later pen these words, humble yourselves. Growing up, I always felt like humble, that's like a state of mind, right? I just got to think of myself as being lowly. No, this is actually a verb right here. Humble yourself. Do things that are seemingly below you. Keep doing things that are seemingly below you. Humble yourself so that he, God, may exalt you at the proper time. The lower you go. The higher you launch. This life is all about pressing down, pressing down, getting low, getting low. And then when God deems it at the right time, the distance we went low in this life will determine the height of where we launch into the next. And that should really stick with us constantly. Our pursuit of greatness matters, it impacts our eternity. May God find us where Jesus was, serving, getting low least of these, leveraging our gifts for the benefit of others. And may we have the faith that the payoff of that is sweet. I mean, really incredible stuff here, isn't it? This conversation, these words, literally changed the world. Because throughout history, followers of Jesus really ran with this text right here. It's beautiful. You look at the history of the church. And a lot of times it's the underground church. But in the middle of multiple epidemics, just after Jesus, in the middle of multiple epidemics, it was Christians who risked their lives for the sick. When everybody else was leaving the towns and getting away from the sick people, the people who stayed, and, and, and write, secular writers write about this, it was the Christians who stayed to care for the sick. Servants who went to the least of these, and it cost many of our brothers and sisters their lives. It was followers of Jesus who banded together to build buildings and and house kids without homes. Later on, they created hospitals for the sick who were left to die. It was the Jesus followers who were a a generous bunch who eagerly volunteered because the lower they pressed, the higher they knew they'd launch. And they literally changed the world. The, The B.C. world out there needed changing. And so Jesus launched the church, and the church is up for the task. And today, you and I, we find ourselves in a world that seems to be reverting back to B.C., doesn't it? It seems like everywhere you turn, their nerves are at fever pitch. Violence is out of control. Social media has created a society of narcissists. There's daily power moves. There's social dysfunction. There, there's unrest. We find ourselves, as a church, we find ourselves in a very critical moment. And as we near November, chances are it's just going to get more out of hand and worse. And it's times like these that the world needs the church more than ever before. The church. A band of lowly servants who don't shy away from the world, but engage it in order to serve it. Put our money where our mouth is and leverage our gifts for the benefit of others, assuming last place if we have to. And this is why, as a church, we feel like God is calling us to up our efforts to serve souls. i got to say, our church's response during COVID has just been incredible. Uh, we had wondered, just with our food pantry, we have a food pantry, and uh, when COVID hit and grocery stores were running out of food, I had a meeting with our food pantry leaders, and we were like, should we, like, sit on this food for a little while and see where this goes? What should we do? And we we're like, this is God's ministry. People need food, so let's just, like, give it all away, and let's trust that God will, God will provide. And so we actually put out an email to you saying, hey, can you help us restock our food pantry? That week we had lines of cars out of the parking lot and down the street of you guys just dropping off groceries, in the, braving the grocery stores, picking up extra, and dropping them off for our food pantry. While the grocery stores had bare shelves, our food pantry never had it. We've seen generous gift after generous gift given to our COVID relief fund. I mean, I'm blown away by the generosity. I, I would love to tell you stories, but I'm not I have a roof over their head right now because of your generosity, of you going, hey, I'm just going to give over and above to help out my brothers and sisters. And we believe that God wants to do so much more. Believe me, we knew opening our doors for physical services wasn't necessarily a decision that everyone agreed with it wasn't a popular decision. There were some people that kind of got upset that we were going to gather together physically. But we believe people need the church. We need to gather. We need to sing. We, we need to fellowship. I need that. My family needs that. We, we need the church. I mean, I don't know about your family, but when my family went without gathering physically as a church, I could tell with all of us, we just needed to get back with our brothers and sisters And while COVID is to be taken seriously, and it will continue to be taken seriously by the bridge, the spiritual cost of not being together has been overwhelmingly obvious to us, and it can't be ignored. We as a church have a God-given responsibility to be present for the hurting. And so through much prayer, the elders and the leadership are in agreement that we need to step up our weekend efforts while continuing to keep our COVID measures in place. So at this point, we're we're running max capacity in our socially distanced auditoriums. We, we can't turn people away. We just can't. So next week, next weekend, we're adding a third Sunday morning service in order to make room so that we can continue to add more people and remain socially distant. So we're going to have our services 8.30, 10 o'clock, and 11.30. Not quite sure how we're going to pull this off, so here's where you come in. Right now, we're running bare bones with our volunteers. Mike back there has his two sons. That's our production crew. Mike and his two sons back there running, running production. I mean, it's just awesome that they're doing that. But we're running bare bones right now. We need more help. And I'm shamelessly inviting you to lock arms. And as we look to do what those who have gone before us have done, be the church in the face of an epidemic. And so in order to up our weekend services, we need greeters. We need parking team members. We need ushers. We need uh, production volunteers. We need videographers. We we need servants. We need people who want to clean between the services. And there's no better place to find them than in the church. So I'm not going to stand up here. I'm not going to give any sort of sales pitch because Jesus never did that. But I will say that if the words of Jesus have have struck you to the point where you want to respond, you're thinking, you know what, I'm in. I'm in. If if we're going forward as a church, I'm, I'm, I'm in there too. Here's what you can do. Serve DP to 94,000. That's it. You can grab your phones out and do production is, and this is what you know. greeting is like, and this is what we need for, for cleaning between services, and this is what the parking team is like. We'd love to be able to do that, but we just we can't right now with everything going on. So if you text Serve DP to be maddie, we'll reach out to you and let you know, okay, here's what we need. What, what can you do? Uh, what's your availability? And we'll get in touch with you with more details. Lock arms. We're going to step in more. We're going to be the church. This world needs people who leverage their gifts, who low? yes, this is a dark hour, but it seems like throughout history, the darkest hours are usually the church's finest moments where they step in. We're gonna go for it, and I hope you're in. Hey, thanks again for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe. Better yet, hit that share button. Maybe screenshot it, share it with your friends. Thanks again for joining in, and until next time, God bless.